here we are now as we're journeying through Acts. We are coming to the third chapter, and so I think we've been about five weeks in, in Acts so far. So I, I want to just remind you of our, our theme. So we're following, you know, kind, kind of a theme through Acts, and if you remember, the theme is the, the spirit, the church, and the world. And so as we go through our study of Acts, we're, um, you know, rather than, I mentioned this earlier, but rather than, you know, looking at each and every verse in detail, we're just, you know, trying to, to follow the narrative along here and, you know, keeping up with the, the, the real purpose of, of the book of Acts to tell us about this dynamic thing that God began in the world uh, on the day of Pentecost uh, that is still going today, and it's something that we are a part of, and, and that, of course, is the church. So the Spirit launches the church into the world for the purpose of proclaiming the gospel so people in the world can be saved. So that that's kind of the um, over arcing theme of, of what we're doing here as we go through Acts. So uh, when Luke described those things that the first Christians engaged in collectively, things that we looked at over the past few weeks, remember there was the, the devotion to the apostles' doctrine, which meant they gathered around the Jesus story. We talked about that. Uh, the, the devotion to fellowship, the devotion to uh, the breaking of bread, the worship, and, and to the prayer. In that, that context there, um, Luke also said many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And so the story that we just read is now a sampling of those wonders and signs that were done by the apostles. And what we see in this is that just as was promised, the miraculous ministry of Jesus is continuing by the Spirit through the apostles and uh, subsequently through the church. So Jesus comes into the world. He comes and, you know, one of his credentials is his miraculous power. But then Jesus ascends back into heaven and he sends his church out into the world, but he's going to give to his church that miraculous power, again, as a testimony to who he really is. And so that's what we want to look at today. We want to look at um, miracles and how miracles and the gospel are connected to one another. So just thinking about miracles. Now, of course, we live in a time where you know, people are very skeptical about the miraculous. And it's not just, a, you know, something that's happened in more recent history. This goes back a few hundred years where uh, people just decided that you know, miracles aren't possible. Uh, we've entered into a scientific age, and we know that those things were just, uh, you know, due to the superstitions of the past. And, and that mentality has even been adopted by some in the church. Some in the church have said, well, you know, the miraculous accounts in the Bible, they are a stumbling block to the rational mind. So we need to remove those miraculous accounts and we need to just focus on 
the ethics of the Christian faith. We need to focus on, um, you know, the morality or the love your neighbor as yourself. We need to focus on that and just, you know, we need to stay away from the miracles because that, that really turns people off. Some, some have said that. Some still say that today. But here's the thing. Miracles are so intertwined with the Bible and the story of Jesus and his church that apart from the miraculous, you can have no real Christianity. In other words, if you try to extract out of the Christian faith the miraculous element, you really lose the, the essence of what the Christian faith is about. The Christian faith is all about miracles and, and one great miracle. Uh, C.S. Lewis put it like this. He said, all the essentials of Hinduism would, I think, remain unimpaired if you subtracted the miraculous. And the same is almost true of Islam. But you cannot do that with Christianity. It is precisely the story of a great miracle. A naturalistic Christianity leaves out all that is specifically Christian. So as Lewis says, Christianity itself is the, is the story of a great miracle. The great miracle that God becomes a man, that God uh, enters into our world as a human being, that uh, a virgin conceives and bears a son. That's, that's called a miracle. The virgin birth is a miracle. So you, you can't do away with the miracles and retain uh, the Christian faith. They, they go hand in hand uh, with one another. Uh, but some have asked, well, hasn't science disproved the possibility of miracles? And the answer is absolutely not. I mean, you would hear some people th talk today and it sounds like, oh yeah, you know, science a long time ago proved that there's no such thing as miracles. But uh, we should never believe those kinds of claims. Uh, let me give you just a, a quick example of um, what, what some scientists are struggling with today that I think will show us why we don't want to put a whole lot of confidence in uh, science. So this past week, I read an article in The Independent. The Independent is a London-based newspaper. And uh, the, the uh, heading over the, the article was, our universe shouldn't exist, scientists say. The article goes on and says, uh, the most elite scientists in the world are still struggling to find why exactly our universe didn't destroy itself as soon as it came into existence. That's what science says should have happened. At the beginning of the universe, according to the standard model, there were equal amounts of matter and antimatter. The trouble with that is that they would each have annihilated the other, leaving none of the matter that surrounds us today. Researchers have been frantically looking for some difference between matter and antimatter that could explain why the universe is still around, but they have tried a range of different possibilities and have found no difference. That has led researchers to question why the universe is still around at all. So this, okay, so th this is, uh, you know, most of the elite scientists are still trying to figure out something that um, most five-year-olds already know, and that is that God created the world. Now, look, if you have a creation, if you have uh, something, uh, something doesn't come from nothing. 
And of course, if you want to put it in, in kind of scientific terms, uh, the universe is an effect that had a cause. And everybody knows that the cause uh, or the effect cannot be greater than the cause. The cause has to be greater than the effect. So it shouldn't take an advanced scientific degree to figure out why the universe exists. We, we should be able to figure out where there's a creation, there's a creator, uh, but still many scientists can't do that. So when scientists come along or the scientific community uh, comes along and says, you can't trust the Bible, there are no such things as miracles, um, you, you know, you don't want to be moved by that. You don't want to be affected by that. I like what Timothy Keller said about the laws of nature. Um, because, of course, some would say, well, you know, miracles would be a violation of the laws of nature. Uh, Keller put it like this. He said, the laws of nature are just custom, God's customary way of doing things. Miracles are God doing things differently than normal. So what, what we call the scientific laws are, this is just the way God does things, but occasionally he does things a little bit differently. So the miraculous like I said, is an integral part of our faith and there's no escaping it. The Bible uh, teaches that miracles are reality and that, that is from cover to cover, numerous miracles. And one other thing, Jesus, when, um, of course, Jesus performed many, many miracles, we'll refer to them in a moment, but um, you know, in, in in his generation, nobody questioned whether Jesus performed miracles. So really, nobody at the time said, no, 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 those, the, he's not really performing miracles. There was never a question of whether he performed miracles. The question was, what was the source of his power that enabled him to perform miracles? That, that's what the question really was in those days. So it was never disputed that Jesus performed miracles. So now, what we want to look at is, first of all, let's look at the purpose of miracles. So we say that miracles are valid. We say that the Bible is full of examples of the miraculous. What is the purpose of miracles? Well, the number one purpose is to magnify the Lord, to magnify Jesus. And we see that in the story here. Because what happens here, this man is uh, looking for alms. He's looking to have somebody give him some financial aid. And uh, Peter looks at him and says, silver and gold I do not have, but what I have I give you. And then he says this, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. You see, the miracle that then took place, this man who was over 40 years old, this man who was born in this condition, this man who never walked his entire life, suddenly stands to his feet and begins to walk, and he begins to jump. He begins to leap. And what Peter wants everybody to know, the man included, is that Jesus is the one who did this. Now, remember, this event took place probably about two months after the death and resurrection of Christ. So that, that's, that's probably where we're at in the, in the history here, probably a couple of months later. So there was, remember, there was the understanding that Jesus had been there, that he uh, had a reputation for doing miracles. Peter says, well, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the one that you've heard about, he's the one who did this here right now. 
And that's what miracles are to do. They're always to point us back to the Lord. You see, what ends up happening many times is that we, we get so enamored with or uh, excited about the miracle that we forget about the one who performed the miracle. And biblically speaking, the, those who, like the apostles who, who performed the miracles, they were quick to always point people back to the Lord. As we read in the passage here, when the, when the crowd gathered around and they were marveling at this thing, Peter said, why are you marveling at this? And why are you looking at us as though we by our own power or godliness had made this man whole? Uh, Peter, he's doing exactly what we're supposed to do. He says, don't look at me, look at Jesus. Jesus is the one who's responsible for this healing. So that's the first thing. The second thing that we need to understand about miracles is that miracles are never a display of naked power for power's sake. So you see, biblical miracles are not just um, naked power. So Jesus didn't walk around just, you know, pulling out the miracle card, just saying, hey, I'm the son of God. Check this out. Watch me do this. Jesus never did anything like that. Now, interestingly, though, that is the devil's version of miracles. The devil comes to Jesus and he says, hey, if you're really the son of God, take these stones and turn them into bread. Hey, if you're really the son of God, jump off of the pinnacle of the temple. And, you know, let the angels catch you. So for the devil, the miraculous is just a display of naked power. I think of when Jesus stood before Herod. He was uh, there standing before Pontius Pilate to be tried. Pilate uh, understands that uh, Jesus was from Nazareth in Galilee. So he says, oh, you know, Herod's in town. Herod's the ruler over Galilee. So I'm going to send Jesus to Herod. So Jesus goes to Herod and it says, and King Herod was so excited that Jesus came because he'd heard about Jesus and he was hoping that he would do a miracle. And you know what? The text tells us that not only did Jesus not do a miracle, he never said a single word to Herod, not a single word. Now, what Herod thought was that miracles just are about, uh, you know, naked power. What, what, uh, Herod expected was Jesus to walk in and go, Hey, Herod, want to see, want to see something? Check this out. Watch this. You know, watch me do this. So that's the devil's version of miracles. It's just about the power, the, the display of power in the future out from where we are today, the Bible tells us that there's going to come a person into the world. We commonly refer to that person as the antichrist. And you know what it says about him? It says that he's going to deceive the world through uh, mighty signs and wonders. So it will be these manifestations of, of naked power that, that persuades the world to follow, uh, or at least some in the world, to follow the Antichrist later. But Jesus never did that. The miracles of the Bible, and particularly the miracles of Jesus and his followers, uh, were always for the benefit of a person and for the alleviation of suffering. Every miracle that Jesus performed had the benefit of somebody else in mind. 
quite often it was the, the deliverance from suffering. I mean, think about it. Jesus uh, delivered people from blindness. He cleansed the lepers. He uh, gave uh, speech to those who couldn't speak. He gave hearing to those who couldn't hear. In this case here and in other cases, uh, people who were lame couldn't walk. He enabled them to do that. So in all of these cases, you find that the miracles of God are always for the benefit of man. And they're always really rooted in a compassion for those who are suffering. And they are uh, an alleviation, as I said, of suffering. And, and what these miracles are, they're also a reminder of God's promise to restore the world to what he originally intended. Intended. So you see, when, when Jesus comes into the world, now remember, Jesus comes and he says, um, the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus comes as the king. He's the king. He's the king of Israel. And he comes and he says, the kingdom of God is at hand. And then his miracles are, are little glimpses of what the kingdom is like. And interestingly, this particular miracle, um, and the others as well, many of the others, but this one in particular points us to a prophecy of Isaiah that talks about the future kingdom when the Lord comes, when the Lord comes and establishes the kingdom on the earth. Isaiah 35 verses five and six say this, behold, your God will come. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened. The ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer and the tongue of the dumb shall sing. So think about that prophecy and think about the things Jesus did and think about what was happening right here. And it almost seems like Luke, who is writing this down, the language that he uses, it almost seems like he made the connection with Isaiah 35 because he records that this man was walking and leaping and praising God. Now, just a little side note that I think is interesting. Luke was a doctor. That's what he was by his profession. He was a physician. And Luke describes this miracle of healing. Uh, he describes it in a very um, medical way. He uses uh, the, the language of a physician in describing it. When he talks about the feet and the ankle bones of this man uh, being healed, he, he describes it from a medical perspective. And so Luke knowing what was the problem with this person and what it would take for them to walk, he realizes himself, this is obviously a miracle, but it's a miracle in fulfillment, uh, partially at least, of the prophecy of Isaiah. So these miracles were a, uh, a picture of what's coming in the future because there's coming a day when the eyes of all the blind shall be opened. The ears of all the deaf shall be unstopped. Uh, the lame, all of the lame shall leap as a deer and there will be no more uh, dumbness or inability to speak. All of those things will be done away with when the Lord returns. So the miracles, they, these are the purposes behind the miracles. But the, the one purpose that we see consistently manifested in connection with the miracle is that the miracle gives a platform for the gospel to be preached. So the miracle was never a substitute for the gospel. In other words, it wasn't just perform a miracle and say, all right, you got your miracle, we'll see you later. It was always the miracle now 
gives a platform to preach the gospel. You see, because a miracle will not save you. Only the gospel will save you. There are, there are plenty of examples, even in the Bible, of people experiencing the miraculous, but not, as a, not coming to the Lord as a result of it. Now, we need to remember that because we often think that the problem is there's just not enough miracles, or if we had a miracle. And how many have maybe thought at times, like, uh, you know, of somebody that you know, somebody that you love, somebody that you maybe have tried to share the Lord with, and you think, you know, if they could just see a miracle then they would believe. No, we don't have any real historical support for that. I think of the story in in Luke's gospel where Jesus, he heals 10 lepers. And the story goes on to talk about how one of them came back to thank him. And Jesus noted, he said, were there not 10 that were healed? Where are the nine? How is it that only one came back to give glory to God? So what's being implied there is that the others, they they received the miracle, but they didn't receive the Lord. And so this is true. So the, the miracle is the platform for the gospel to be preached. The gospel must be preached. And Yes, we want to see God do miraculous things, but we just have to understand it's not a substitute for the gospel. The gospel has to be preached because it's the gospel that is the power of God to salvation. And quite truly, the gospel is really the greatest of all the miracles because when you, when you see a person brought from the dead spiritually and given a new life, that is the most amazing of the miracles. So it becomes a platform for the gospel. Now, I want us to look secondly at the gospel itself. So so this is the apostolic gospel. So like I said, the miracles are a platform. So you go back to chapter two and what happened? There were those miraculous events on the day of Pentecost. And as a result of that, what happened? Peter preached the gospel. 3,000 were added to the church that day. Now here we have the same thing. A miraculous thing takes place. What happens? Peter stands up and he begins to preach the gospel. All the way through the book of Acts, you find this consistent pattern. Every time there's a miracle that's recorded, there's also in connection with it a proclamation of the gospel, either clearly stated and spelled out or it's inferred that it, was, that it happened. So what was the gospel that they preached? Well, this was the gospel. Christ died and rose again. Our sins put him on the cross. We must repent and be converted. That, that is more or less the same message that was preached over and over again. Sometimes the context was a little different, so the side points maybe were a little bit different. Uh, here, Peter's preaching to uh, not only a Jewish audience, but here Peter's actually preaching to people who were personally guilty of of. Uh, sentencing Jesus to death. In other places, uh, especially when we get into Paul's ministry, we find that much of Paul's preaching is in more of a Gentile context. So he, you know, he, he addresses that in its context. But my point is this, that there were basically, these were the things always that were there in the preaching of the apostolic gospel. Christ died and rose again. Our sins put him on the cross. We must repent and be converted. So let's just look at that uh, real quick here. So as the lame man, verse 11, 
who was healed held on to Peter and John. All the people ran together to them in the porch, which is called Solomon's, greatly amazed. So when Peter saw it, he responded to the people, men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why look at, so intently at us as though we, by our own power, godliness, had made this man walk? And here he goes, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, listen, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But you denied the Holy One and the just and asked for a murderer to be granted to you and killed the Prince of Life whom God raised from the dead. So you see what he does? He talks about the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, and he points to their uh, culpability in the whole matter here. So the gospel is, first of all, that Christ died. That is the gospel. Christ died. But why did Christ die? He died for our sins. You see, our sins are the problem. And we'll, we'll get to that a little further in the message. But, the, you know, all of the problems in the world today can be traced back to one thing, sin. And sin at its root is what has uh, separated us from God, or sin at its root is, is our, you know, turning to our own way. But that has resulted in a separation from God, and that is the, the root source of all of the problems in the world. So Christ died because of our sins, for our sins. He died to pay the penalty for our sins, but he rose again. He rose again, showing that the payment that he made for our sins was accepted and showing that he has victory over sin in the grave. But Peter, notice how he really um, makes it clear their culpability. Now, every one of us, Every single person here, every person listening, every one of us, it can be said accurately that we put Jesus on the cross. Jesus died on that cross because of our sins. But in a sense, we could, in comparison at least to the group here, you know, we, we might say we, we indirectly did. I mean, you know, it was our sins that put him there. But in the case here, if you notice these people really, like literally put Jesus on the cross. So apparently in this crowd that Peter is preaching to, this is fascinating to me, in this crowd that Peter's preaching to, there are people that were there on that day standing before Pilate. And when Pilate was saying, do you want me to uh, give you Jesus or do you want me to give you Barabbas? Some in this crowd said, we don't want Jesus. Do away with him, crucify him, give us Barabbas. Peter is saying, you did that. So he's telling them. So this group of people here, uh, these are people who directly put Jesus on the cross. But notice what Peter's doing. He's appealing to them to repent so they can be saved. So here's something that's amazing. So the very people that put Jesus on the cross can be forgiven. And of course, that's for those who put him on directly, but for us who put him on indirectly in that sense that we weren't there that day shaking our fist, but it was our sins. Of course, it was for our sins that Jesus went to the cross anyway. You know, we're living in a time again where sin is really an unpopular concept. And, uh, you know, we understand why the culture doesn't want to hear about sin, but the problem is when the church says, well, you know, we don't want to really talk about sin because that's offensive to people. 
we better talk about sin because if we don't talk about sin, we can't really truly talk about salvation because salvation is salvation from the consequences of sin. And if we take sin out of the picture, then what do we even need to be saved for? You know, nobody's going to ask for a savior that doesn't see themselves as in trouble. I only want deliverance if I recognize that I am in a, in a perilous place. And so Peter, with all of the boldness that you can imagine, I mean, think about this. He's talking to those very people and he is not holding back at all. He's saying, you took Jesus and you asked for a murderer and you killed the prince of life, but God raised him from the dead. And so we today, from generation to generation, we cannot uh, be afraid to address uh, the, the issues of sin, the issues of sin in our culture today. And, you know, it's becoming more and more um, a problem to do this. And more and more people are not wanting to uh, even have it suggested that their behavior is sinful. And they're doing everything from you know, sometimes personally attacking people who are suggesting that to trying to get uh, you know legislation against anybody doing that. And you know it, it's a it's an intense time, and yet we can't hold back. We can't draw back. We certainly have to be wise when we talk about these things, but nevertheless, we can't. Um, refrain from talking about the reality of sin and sin putting Jesus on the cross because that is the only way somebody can be saved is if they recognize I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner and I need a savior. Now, Peter then calls for repentance and conversion. And so verse 19, repent therefore and be converted. So what does it mean to repent? Well, here's what it does not mean. Repent does not mean go now and get your life together. Go clean up your act. And once you did that, then come back and let God know you got it all cleaned up and then he will accept you and he will uh, allow you to be part of his kingdom. That's not repentance. But some, some people present repentance that, in a way that it kind of seems like that's what it is. Repent means, okay, get, get yourself sorted out that you can come to God. No, the word repent means simply to have a change of thinking, a change of mind, actually. Metanoia is the Greek word, and noia is mind, and meta is have a different mind. So we're to have a change of thinking that then results in a, a change of direction, if you will. So really, repentance is turning. It's turning to God. Now, Isaiah put it like this. He said, all we like sheep have gone astray. Listen, we have turned everyone to his own way. This is the problem. This is what sin really is at its root. You know what sin is at its root? It's turning to your own way. It's refusing to do things God's way. It's refusing to believe God's word. It's refusing to live the way God says to live. Everyone has turned to his own way. So repentance is turning away from our own way and turning to God. Now, repent and be converted. Now, here's the wonderful thing. God calls us to repentance. He gives us the grace to repent 
And so as we turn to him, he meets us with his spirit and we are then converted. Conversion means that we are regenerated. We are given a new life. So what Peter's talking about here is not simply outward stuff like um, you know, like church attendance. Some people say, well, you know, I, I didn't go to church for a lot of years, but now I go to church. Or some people would say, well, you know, I used to behave like this, but I don't behave like that anymore. Now I do these kinds of things. Now, granted, uh, repentance and conversion would certainly lend itself to, you know, being in church and, and not living a certain way, but that's not really what it is. Those are the byproducts of it. Repentance and conversion are you turning to God and God's spirit coming inside of you and giving you a new life. Conversion is regeneration. It's a new life. It's a spiritual life. It's something that happens from within you by the spirit of God. So that's what the apostolic gospel was. Christ died and rose again. Those are the facts. He did so for our sins and we are to repent and be converted. And now the results are, number one, that your sins may be blotted out. Your sins may be blotted out. Like I said earlier, this is the problem. So like Isaiah said in Isaiah 59, uh, God's ear is not dull that he can't hear you. And his arm is not short that he can't help you. But your sins have separated you from God. So see, this is the problem. Sin has built an impenetrable barrier between us and God. Sin has built like a, a wall that's, that's so thick it cannot be penetrated, and it's so high it cannot be scaled. And what we need to have is that wall of sin removed, and that's what the gospel does. The gospel, it just blows that wall to bits. It blows out that... Um, that obstacle that's keeping us from a relationship with God, that thing that's keeping us back from experiencing God's uh, saving arm. So he says, repent and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. That's what happens. All of those sins, God blots them out. He erases them, in other words. And now you have a clean slate. Because, of course, Jesus died for those. He paid the penalty of those things that we committed. And now, since the penalty has been paid, they are removed. And now we can come to God. But the second thing that results is times of refreshing from the presence of the Lord. I just like this phrase. I love it. Times of refreshing from the presence of the Lord. Just think with me for a second about uh, just a time of refreshing that you might have had. Remember like last week when it was 110 degrees in the shade <laughs> on the beach? Remember how crazy, how crazy that was, how hot it was? And just to have those times of refreshing where you might have waded out into the uh, Pacific or something like that, or you might have just you know, stuck your head under a faucet or, or you know, a, a time where maybe you you exercised or you played a sport or you worked hard and man, you just couldn't wait to get to that thirst quenching drink, whatever it might've been. And you know, it, you were refreshed. You just think, oh, this, this is just so refreshing. Well, that's 
the, the, way, the way Peter describes this here is so beautiful. Times of refreshing from the presence of the Lord. Or you know how it is on a hot day where just suddenly there's a cool breeze that blows and it just does something where you're just like, oh, that's great. That's so nice. Sometimes when I would find myself on these runs, these long runs, and I would you know, get to the end of the run, it might be the middle of the day, it might be like 85 or 90 degrees or something. And just in my, you know, my shoes and everything, I just go to the shower on the beach and just hit that thing and just stand under it. And just, you know, for 10 minutes, I'm just, I'm getting refreshed from that. And so we know what that is, right? From the, just or experientially, we know what times of refreshing are, but this is refreshing from the presence of the Lord. This is that same kind of experience that we have physically, but it's a spiritual thing. It's something where we just feel renewed. We feel reinvigorated. And those are actually ways that you could translate the word as well. But notice too that it's times of refreshing from the Lord's presence. Because remember, what happens is when our sins are blotted out, then we're brought into the presence of the Lord. And that's what we need more than anything. Years ago, I did a study on the presence of the Lord. And through that teaching, I realized that, you know, that's really what we want more than anything. And that's what I pray for, even for our church, even for our gatherings. It's like, Lord, you know, all that really matters is that you are present with us. Because when a person walks into the presence of the Lord, there's something so beautiful about that. There's something so refreshing. And that's what the promise is. Times of refreshing from the presence of the Lord. And then finally, this is in verse 26, to you first, God, having raised up his servant, Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning every one of you away from your iniquities. So the third result is blessing. And notice that the blessing is due to the fact that we've been turned away from our iniquities. So I'm coming back around to what I said before. Sin is the cause of all of our trouble. Sin is the reason for all of our miseries. And what Jesus has done through his death and resurrection and what God does for us through the gospel, he separates us from our iniquities. And that is a blessing. You know, that, that's the blessing. When you think of the misery that sin puts us in. And, and I think of people, I, I can think of myself, obviously. I can think of my life before I was a believer and how, yes, it was, you know, a lot of misery. And it was all self-inflicted because it was due to the sin that I was living in. But, but I can think of people that I've met over the years, people that I've counseled with or, uh, you know, just people that I've conversed with or people whose testimonies I've heard um, and, and to see the blessing on their life and, and to hear in contrast to that, the, the misery that they were in when they were in their sin. They might've been in misery in a prison cell. They were there because of their sin. They might've been in misery to a drug addiction because they, you know, that was part of their sin. They might've been in misery because of a, a conflict or something, but it all goes back to sin. And so this is what the gospel does. It brings us a blessing by delivering us from our sin. So that's what the gospel's meant to do. You know, the, the gospel was not meant to comfort us in our sin. Like, hey, I know you're in sin. It's okay. Don't worry. The good news is God still loves you. 
Well, God does love us even in our sin, but guess what? He wants to get us out of our sin because he wants his love to be experienced. He wants the blessing and the benefit uh, that he intended to come to us. And that comes when we are disconnected from our sin, not remaining in it. So he sent him to bless every one of you in turning you away from your iniquity. So that's what the gospel did. That's how Peter appealed to them then. And that's what the gospel does today. So three things. We should believe in miracles. They are real. We should expect miracles. Because why not? Like I pointed out, we are just a continuation of this story. So here it is. It starts right here. We're in the early stages of, of, of the story of uh, the Spirit sending the church out into the world with the gospel. So we're still in the story. We're way down there now in the story, but we're in the story. And it's a story of, of the miraculous power of Christ still at work through his church. So we should not only believe that there are miracles, we should expect them. Are we expecting God to work? Or are we just not even intentionally, but maybe just sort of subtly buying into the, well, I don't know if miracles really um, haven't really seen a miracle. You know, here's the truth. God's doing a lot more than we realize. And a lot of times the, it's not that God's not doing stuff. It's that we're dull of hearing and our sight is dull because we're spiritually dull. So we should believe in miracles. We should expect miracles. We should ask the Lord to sensitize us to the work of his spirit so we can see what he's doing. But then remember that the miracle is ultimately a platform for the gospel. So as we hear about things and as we see things happening, that we would use that as the opportunity to say, hey, listen, let me tell you about Jesus who died and rose again for our sins. So that we could experience our sins being blotted out in times of refreshing from the presence of the Lord and blessing because we're separated from those things. Let's look for those opportunities. Now, in closing, finally, going back to the, the story of the man himself. The lame man, he thought he needed silver and gold. And I'm absolutely sure that when... You know, Peter locked his, his eyes on this man and said, silver and gold, have I none? The guy probably went, oh, great. What is this guy going to say? You know, he, he wants the silver and gold. That's what he needs. Peter says, I don't have any. Okay, well, what does he have? In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. What? <laughs> rise up and walk. I, I don't think he was expecting that. But that's what he really needed. You know, had Peter given him money, well, he would have taken it and just like other people had given him money and he would have used it and then he would have been right back out there the next day and the next day and the next day and the next day doing the same thing. But his real need was not for money. His real need was for Jesus. And this is true for you and for me and for everyone else. You know, Everybody thinks they know. 
what everybody else needs and people think they know what they need. But the truth is what everybody needs is the Lord. People need the Lord. You, you, can, get, you can get money. You can get all the money. You know, we think of like, you know, government programs and things and, you know, the, the constant, you know, we need more money. We got to put more money into this thing. And, you know, it's like just dumping the money down a bottomless pit. Nothing ever really changes. The money goes, but nothing else really changes. Because money doesn't solve pro those kinds of problems. And, and whether it's money or something else that we think, you know, even with this man, no, I want you to notice this. Yes, he was physically healed. That's a wonderful thing. But that wasn't what he was leaping and praising about. What, because he was leaping and praising God, what's implied in that is that he's had an encounter with the Lord. Because we surely can't think that the answer to everybody's problem is just that they get healed of their condition because there are plenty of people that don't even have the condition who are just as miserable as the person with the condition. You know, if this guy had for one moment thought that, you know, if I could just walk, I would be the happiest person in the world. All he had to do is look around and recognize that, well, that doesn't, all these people are walking around, they're not happy. <laughs> so there's something, there's something beyond it. There's something deeper. And Peter, of course, he knows that. And that's why he's there. He's there to tell this man that there's something greater than silver and gold. There's something even greater than healing. It's Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And so that again is our, that's our hope. That's what we have experienced. And, and this is what we have to offer to the world. You know, sometimes people say, oh, you Christians, you know, you just talk about people needing salvation and you don't care about anything else, which isn't true. You know, hospitals, schools, help for the poor, all, you know, who's done that historically? The Christians have done it. That's just the reality. Don't, if you want to argue about it, um, just go read history and you'll find that I'm right and you're wrong. <laughs> the atheists didn't start the hospitals. I'm sorry. They didn't start the universities. They didn't start anything. They just hijacked it all. No, the Christians did it the people who believed in God, the people who had compassion. But you know, we hear that sometimes, oh, you Christians, you know, you just care about, and you don't care about this. No, we care about that, but we also know that those are just temporary fixes. And yes, you can, you can give money, and we do give money. And you can give aid, and we do give aid, and you can give assistance, and we do give assistance. But at the end of the day, if the man doesn't come to know Jesus, then he's just a walking miserable man instead of a sitting miserable man. Jesus is the answer. The gospel is the answer. A relationship with God is the answer. And let's not forget that. So Lord, help us to not forget that. Help us, Lord, uh, who are the, the beneficiaries of this great gospel. Lord, to just have a fresh... Um, understanding of the glory of it, of the power of it, and, and what it's done in our lives and what it can do in the lives of others. And help us, Lord, help us, Lord, to proclaim it. And Lord, I would pray too for any with us today who uh, have never repented and been converted. Lord, open their hearts. Help them today to do that very thing, to repent, to turn to you. 
We pray these things in Jesus' name.